Okay, so we're going to be carrying on in the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at chapter 25 that we read before and then on into chapter 26. So if you want to have that open in front of you, that would be really helpful. We'll get to 26 in a minute, but we're just going to fly through chapter 25. One word of caution before we start. You might have felt already in our series through the book of Acts that there's been a degree of repetition both in themes and application points, and even in some of the stories, there's a bit of repetition that's gone on. Uh, You might have felt like we've had a lot of the call to go and share the gospel with other people, right? That's happened a lot through the book of Acts. You might feel like we've talked a lot about gospel urgency, about the power of the gospel and the power of sharing testimony. You might have heard us talk a lot about God's sovereignty, These things have come up in Acts for us again and again. And there's even more of them tonight. Acts 25 and 26 are almost like a little summary of all the teaching points we've had through the book of Acts. And beyond the kind of repetition in themes and teaching topics, tonight we've even got the repetition just of a story. This is a third time in the book of Acts in chapter 26 that we're going to hear how Saul became Paul, how Paul became converted. The third time we're going to have it. And the danger is that for us this becomes a little bit like that uncle who shares that anecdote way too many times. And you kind of think, oh, we've heard the one about the fishing trip. Yeah, yeah, and then that happened. And you kind of, they keep telling you like you've never heard it before, but you're thinking, this is getting ridiculous. I'm so bored of that story you keep telling me. The problem is when that happens to us, we start to switch off, right? If this has happened to you with one of your relatives or one of your friends, when they go to that go-to story, you go to sleep. But that's not what's happening in the book of Acts tonight. And our response has got to be the opposite of that, oh, here you go again, I'm going to go to sleep. Because this repetition isn't Luke running out of stories in the book of Acts. It's Luke making a major point in the book of Acts. If there has been a repetition to go and make disciples, that repetition has been Luke's. And if it's been Luke's, then it's been the Lord's. And so we need to come to this tonight with fresh ears again. We need to have some respect for the story that Luke's wanting to tell us. For Luke to write it out three times, it's worth us listening to it three times. For him to write 28 chapters instead of just one chapter is worth us coming to it many, many times. Even if these are lessons that we've kind of learned before, even if they're things that we've understood before, as we come to these truths again, we need to ask ourselves this question. In all the things we've been learning through the book of Acts, am I conformed to them yet? Am I at the point now where I don't need to hear another sermon calling me to go and make disciples? I'm just on it in that area of my life. Are we at the point of understanding God's total sovereignty over all things and how that impacts our mission to say, Martin, I don't need to hear you say that God is sovereign again tonight. If your life is in such conformity to those kind of truths, the door is open. If it's not then we need to come and hear what the Lord would teach us through the words recorded by Luke. So let's dig into chapter 25 of Acts. So far we've had Paul arrested in Jerusalem. He's gone into trial before this Felix guy. Felix has been pretty useless. He's been a bit of a coward and he's been a bit of a time waster. So for two years under that governor, not much has happened. But then we get this new guy arrives on the scene, Festus, and he's a different kettle of fish altogether. What we do see is that although two years have gone by, the priority for the Jewish leaders is absolutely unchanged. Their desire as ever is to end Paul's ministry. In fact, it's to end his life. Do you see the plot again just at the start of chapter 25? We're going to get him to be transferred to Jerusalem and then we're going to kill him on the road. 
So straight away they engage with Festus. He's only just arrived on the job. The first thing that gets laid on his desk, what are you going to do about Paul? This guy who you've just arrived and he's already imprisoned in your jail. He doesn't want to bring him up to Jerusalem for whatever reason. I think he's just being pragmatic. He says, look, I'm going to Caesarea where Paul is. I don't need to make him come back up here. We're going there in like eight, ten days anyway. We'll just try him there. And he's totally entitled to do that. So they arrive, and then in verse 6 we see they just get on with it. The Jews bring their, uh, their charges against Paul. We don't know exactly what the charges are, but we start to get the gist of the main point in just a minute. What we do know about their charges is they're absolutely baseless. Do you see that at the end of verse 7? They're just not true. They can't prove any of it. And so Paul doesn't have to spend much time giving his defense. In verse 8, he acquits himself, doesn't he? Then Paul gave his defense. I have done nothing wrong against, number one, the law. So that's as a Jew. Number two, the temple. I've not done anything wrong against temple, temple practice. And number three, I've not done anything wrong as a Roman citizen. I've not offended Caesar, the ruler of Rome. So it's pretty easy for Festus to make the decision, look, this guy is innocent. But like his predecessor, there's this, uh, this predisposition to try and keep the Jews on side. If you're governing over a people group, you want them to be on your team, right? And so he thinks, okay, I'm going to try and do the Jews a favor. Paul, why don't we head up to Jerusalem and kind of have the same trial again? Paul says, not on your life. Uh, for the past few chapters, we've realized Paul wants to get to Rome. He wanted to go to Jerusalem, but after Jerusalem, the goal is Rome. We could see that back in Acts 19 in verse 21. He says, after all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, which happened, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. Rome is the goal. He has no interest in going back to Jerusalem. Perhaps he recognizes the danger inherent in it. Maybe he'll be attacked by the Jews. And so he says, no, Rome's the goal. I don't want to be tried in this arena again. In fact, if I'm going to be tried, I want it to be in Rome. So he makes this appeal to Caesar. We saw last week, as Matt taught us, this combination between God's sovereignty in the book of Acts and yet Paul's activity, how there's still this human responsibility and human action and human decision, but the whole time God's sovereign. And I think if you want a little summary of that, it's verses 10 to 12. Paul acts on what God has sovereignly ordained. He's a Roman citizen. citizen. How does that happen? God wanted Paul to be a Roman citizen. So in his sovereign will, that's what he was. But Paul acts on being a Roman citizen. And so he makes this call, I appeal to Caesar. Like any Roman citizen, that means Paul's got the right to be tried in Italy. Uh, This doesn't mean that the court that they're in is invalid. In fact, he calls it Caesar's court. But it means he has the right to be tried right in the heart of the Roman Empire to go before Caesar. And this becomes his route to Rome. Although there's been this two-year delay, although it's going to be in shackles, this is the route to Rome. I wonder if you're planning a missionary trip, whether you'd plan to have a two-year delay under arrest. Maybe not, but this is God's way. And so Paul acts well within his rights. We could talk a lot about making the most of the legal rights we have in this country, because they're so extensive. We can do whatever we want for the gospel in this country. Maybe not for much longer, but right now we can share the gospel And we do have rights that protect us. We don't see why Paul has to go through this situation, but we do see God's hand in it. Uh, You saw before that the Jews wanted to kill Paul on the road between Caesarea and Jerusalem. 
And I wonder if it's actually being under Roman guard, having to travel in chains, which protects him from the Jews. It doesn't explicitly say that, but I think we can see God's hand protecting Paul even as he travels. But we don't set sail quite yet. Cliffhanger. Uh, Festus decides, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. That's a massive turning point in the route to to Rome at the end of verse 12. But we don't set off. There's another delay as King Agrippa and Bernice, who is his sister, rumored to be his incestuous sister, say, we want a piece of this trying Paul action. And so they arrive and they say, we want to see Paul. We want to hear this defense. And what's really important for us to hone in on is as Festus gives his kind of summary of the trial so far, what he identifies to be the key point. Come with me to verses 18 and 19 of chapter 25. In all of this trial, what's been the big deal? When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. What happened? Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. Here's the big controversy, right? If you want to know what's the big issue at hand in these whole few chapters in the book of Acts, is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in some ways, how it relates to Judaism. What's the deal here? Although they've tried to bring this political charge, the issue's theological. How does Judaism and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus relate? Paul is absolutely dead on in his claim. The Lord Jesus is alive. That's just what he said to them. And that's been the area of dispute. And we're going to see as we move on into chapter 26, this is the central point of chapter 26. This is the biggie. Festus has figured out, okay, here's what's actually going on. They're upset and falling out about the resurrection of Jesus. So all of these guys with all of their pomp and circumstance come to hear Paul. They want to know more about what Paul is saying about the 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 resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So here they come with all their pomp and all their circumstance. I love that word pomp in verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Not just a little bit of pomp, but great pomp. So the good and the great of the day and the area come to hear Paul. They gather together and they process in all these high-ranking officers. And theirs is the right to say, you there, Paul in chains, come and speak before us. Paul is absolutely in their hands, is how it looks at the start of chapter 26. Agrippa then motions to Paul that he can speak. So let's read together from chapter 26. We'll start at verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa... I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night, O King. It is because of this hope 
that the Jews are accusing me? Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme in my obsession against them. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission, and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have, ha- I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane most excellent Festus. Paul replied, what I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short or long time, I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room, and while talking with one another, they said, This man has not done anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is God's word. So in Acts 26... For Paul, opportunity knocks, and he knocks it right out of the park. What a speech. 
you see how he just seizes the opportunity, right? How it turns from defense of his life to witness for the gospel of the Lord Jesus. How it turns from an investigation into Paul to Paul just evangelizing them. It's amazing how he seizes this opportunity. And right at the heart of Paul's speech, what do we find? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, he just sees the resurrection as a fact. The big issue that needed to be addressed from chapter 25. This is what Paul wants to spend his time talking about. That Jesus is back from the dead. Paul talks about a Jesus that's alive. And Paul's defense speaks of Jesus as three things. Number one, as Jesus, as God's promised hope fulfilled. Number two, as the resurrected Jesus, as the one who offers life-changing hope. And number three, as the resurrected Lord Jesus, as the one at work through his people to fulfill all that God intends. We're going to unpack those three things uh, through Paul's testimony and through Paul's teaching. So the first thing, the risen Lord Jesus as God's promised hope fulfilled. Do you see how much he talked about the relationship between the resurrection of Jesus and the Old Testament? This is massive for Paul and it should be massive for us. I don't think this is a thing that seems like a big deal to us as New Testament Christians, but this is a big deal. Paul spends a lot of time showing the connection between the Old Testament and the resurrection of Jesus. Come back with me to verse 3 of chapter 26. You'll see that's where he begins. He's really excited because the people he's speaking to understand Judaism. See that again in verse 3? And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. He wants to talk to people who understand the Old Testament about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews are very clear that following Jesus, claiming Jesus is alive, is absolute, absolute abandonment of Judaism. You cannot claim to be a Jew and say, I follow the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. These things are absolutely juxtaposed. But Paul goes to outrageous lengths to show them the exact opposite is true. Look at verses 4 and 5. This is where he begins with his own testimony. He says, verses 4 and 5, I was a cracking Jew. People even knew how good a Jew I was. In fact, I was a Jew of Jews. Strictest sect, I was a Pharisee. He was an amazing Jew. And at first, he thought, like his accusers, that being an amazing Jew meant persecuting the Christians, stomping out this sect of the Nazarenes, these people who believed in the Lord Jesus. And so he goes about trying to end Christianity. Do you see that? In verses 9 to 12, he says, I was just like you, but better. If you were in the army of trying to stop Christianity by putting me on trial, I was in the Marines of stopping Christianity. I went to incredible length. I was so convinced that this was absolutely wrong in accordance with Judaism. I was like you, believing that what I was doing was right. He thought what he was doing was so right by Judaism. But then he met the risen Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's what we come to. As we come to, to meet the Lord Jesus Christ with Paul, he enters this situation absolutely convinced, I am serving God. I am being faithful to the Old Testament. I am a good Jew. But then in verses 14 and 15, we realize the absolute opposite. Let's read together verses 14 and 15 again. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When a voice from heaven says, why do you persecute me? You've got an issue with God. 
it is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, who are you, O Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied. Paul was way off the mark, right? Thought he was serving God well in opposing Christianity and trying to stomp out people who followed Jesus. But in all of his efforts, he was fighting against what God had done and what God was doing. In all of his pursuit of righteousness, he's actually going against the goad, kicking against the goad, opposing God. And what had God done? The God he's fighting against had brought Jesus Christ back from the dead after being crucified. And Paul shows us throughout this whole chapter that's exactly what God promised to do. This was not a surprise. This was not out of the blue salvation. This was with accordance with God's word to the most minute details. This is God's plan unfolding. This is the Jewish God's plan unfolding. And so there's a painful irony for us as we read of what Paul was like, right? Thought I was doing right by God, but I was kicking against God. There's a painful irony about these guys who think, as righteous Jews, we must stop those people who follow Jesus. Do you see how he puts it? It's because of a Jewish hope the Jews have me on trial. Because I believe the Lord has fulfilled what he promised to all of us, to our fathers, to Abraham, to Moses, to the twelve, to the prophets. Because of what the Lord promised to them, I'm on trial. It's totally unjust. It's totally ironic. Because of the Jewish hope, this follower in the Jewish saviour, Jesus, is being persecuted. God had promised to give a saviour, one who would bring new life and through whom we could have certain hope of resurrection life with him forever. And that's exactly what God's done. That's what's happened. He's fulfilled his promise and he's fulfilled it exactly. Following the risen Christ is not abandoning the Old Testament, it's faithfulness to the Old Testament. Being obedient to what God has fulfilled. And as verse 26 says, do you see that at the bottom? I love this line. At the bottom, 26 verse 26, these things have not been done in a corner. God made this promise publicly to the Jews and he has fulfilled this promise on the world stage. This wasn't tucked away. This wasn't a surprise saviour. This was the promised saviour, not done in a corner, resurrected to offer newness of life. Verses 22 and 23 are so clear, aren't they? This is God's master plan unfolding. As we just um, see the plan of God unfold, read verses 22 and 23 with me again. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Do you see what he's saying? My defense, my hope in the resurrected Christ is Moses' hope in the resurrected Christ. I just understand it better. I've seen the plan unfold. God has worked the salvation that he wanted to work precisely how he wanted to work it. God is sovereign in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his crucifixion and in Paul's belief in him. This is what he's done. So much of this chapter can teach us so much about God's faithfulness, right? What he has promised, he brings to pass. As Matt said last week, he declares the end from the beginning. And the end he promised was salvation through the Messiah, through his death and his resurrection. That's what's happened. 
That's exactly what's happened. And so as we run through the Old Testament, we can see it's littered with these promises. And now it's so easy for us to say, oh, that was about Jesus. But it was hard for them to see it. It was hard for them to see it. They were not inclined to be with us in seeing that. But we know now that belief in Jesus is faithfulness to God's promises. Jesus has done what God said he would done. Belief in those promises. Belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus is belief in the Old Testament God. Reverence in Jesus is true Judaism, right? But to an extent we could say Paul is being the truest Jew in the room by believing in Jesus. That seems hard for us to say now 2,000 years on when they're such separate religions. But they're not. They're not at this point. The, the Jewish God made promises. The Jewish God fulfilled promises. He's the Christian God. We're being true Jews. We're being true heirs to the Old Testament if we believe in Jesus. We're being faithful to the first half of our Bibles when we believe in Jesus. These things are not disconnected. I think sometimes we look at the Old Testament, even as Christians, and kind of see it as a nice antique, but in somebody else's shop window. Right? We look at it and we say, look, this thing's a beautiful old table. We know it's got a story. We know it's 200 years old. We know it's kind of got this nice history and it's connected to someone's story. But it's not my story. It's just a nice antique in somebody else's window. But we need to look at it the way I'm looking at my new table in my new flat. Uh, we just bought a new flat, just to explain. And uh, we received a, a housewarming present from my mum, which was a few pieces of antique furniture. Not that she saw in a junk shop, but that belonged to my, to my family, to my kin. And so in the front of our room at the moment, there's a table which my great-great-grandmother bought for my great-grandmother as a wedding present for their first new home. And my great-grandmother passed it to my grandmother, who passed it to my mother when they bought their first home, who passed it to us on the purchase of our first home. I look at that table and I see my family, right? I see my inheritance. And that's how it should be for all of us when we come to the Old Testament. This is not like you guys coming around to us and looking at the table and saying, okay, it's nice, but it's kind of old. We're to come and look at it and say, this is mine. This is mine. The promises to Abraham have been fulfilled in my Savior. I'm his heir. The promises of God in the Old Testament are not this alien thing, right? These are ours. And it's been a common Baptist error to say, we're not that connected to the Old Testament. We're New Testament Christians, right? No, we're Bible Christians. We're Yahweh's Christians. We're the God of the Old Testament's Christians. Because we believe in what he has done. And what he has done is sent his son to be our saviour. So that was point one. Sorry if it was a bigger point, but it's a big deal, right? We don't talk about that enough. Point number two. The resurrected Jesus as the one who offers life-changing hope. This promised hope from the Old Testament that is met in Jesus is a life-changing hope, right? This is atom bomb on your dinner plate, world-changing hope found in the resurrected Lord Jesus. Verse 23 is such a clear summary for us of the gospel, isn't it? That the Christ would suffer and die and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people, that is the Jews, and to the Gentiles, that's us. This is how God has brought about his promised hope. Through sending his son, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, to die, to suffer, And to bring us new life. Verse 26 says he's not done it quietly. He's brought this about for us. He's proclaimed this truth publicly. 
Paul's testimony is such a clear one in terms of the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus, the power of this hope, right? He comes into this situation such a different man to how he leaves it. Comes in raging against the Christian church, comes out probably the most influential individual ever in the Christian church, other than the Lord Jesus, obviously. The risen Lord Jesus brings about life-changing hope in Paul. Look at what it does to him. Brings an end to his fight against God. Brings him onto God's team to be a servant with God. It's absolutely massive. Look at what the spreading of this message does to people. Look at the change that the raised Lord Jesus has upon people. When people meet Jesus, blindness turns to sight. Darkness turns to light. People leave the power of Satan and enter the world of God. And in that kingdom, they find forgiveness and light. They find a place in a family forever. Do you see where Paul's saying that? I preach this good news to them. Exactly as Moses promised. That's the message I have preached to them. Do you see that in verse 18? To open their eyes. This is what happens when people are introduced to the resurrected Lord Jesus. Eyes get opened. Turn from the power of darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified through faith in me. This is the life-changing moment, right? All through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how does this happen? How does God's salvation, the promised salvation, come to people? It says they put their faith in Christ. That Jesus died for them and for their sins. That he suffered in their place. This is what we believe, that Jesus stood in our place. We deserve to suffer and face penalty for our sins. That penalty was death, but Jesus took that death for us. But that, that same Jesus who had lived sinlessly was God's own son, came back to life three days later, was raised bodily. That's who Paul met. You don't meet dead people like that. And that as he meets us in his resurrected state, he brings new life to us, right? He says, this resurrection life that I have can be your resurrection life. The family I am in, the family of God, can be your family. The place to which I'm going, heaven, and the new creation can be the place to which you go with a resurrection body like mine. That's the gospel we believe. That's our hope. And this brings new life to people. This transforms people. That's been the story of Acts, hasn't it? We've seen so many people transformed by the gospel. Simply speaking, this resurrection proves that Jesus died to save us. And as we look at the resurrected Jesus, it ensures us of full forgiveness, full reconciliation with God, and that when the Lord Jesus returns, we will be raised. We don't stay dead. We will be raised to be with him forever. That's what coming to understand this gospel brings to your life. There's lots of people in this room who would testify that to you. We talked two weeks ago about the power of sharing our testimony in that way. And we should continue to think about that. The question is, have you been transformed by it or are you kicking against the goads? Are you spending so much energy fighting God that you fail to see the reality of what God has fulfilled in Jesus? We pray and we're happy to say it that you would see the truth. That you would see that Jesus did die for sins and is raised again. And that through faith in him, you can have eternal life. Amazingly, this transformation leads us into point number three. 
that we can become part of what God is continuing to do. We said that the risen Lord Jesus fulfilled God's promises, and he does, that he offers life-changing hope, and he does. But thirdly, he is the one who is now, through his transformed people, still at work, still at work to fulfill all of God's promises. Uh, Luke began his first letter saying, this is what Jesus began to do. This is what Jesus continues to do now through his people, through those transformed people. He continues to spread his gospel. And as much as we're to understand tonight God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness in what he has done, we're to lay hold of God's sovereignty and his faithfulness in what he is doing now through the church as it's ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. That he continues to work out his salvation plan to the Jew and to the Gentile. He continues to complete his promises. His promises to exalt his name among not just the Jews, but all the nations. And as we go on in our mission journeys, as Paul goes on in his mission journeys, we're to have this, this confidence in God's faithfulness and God's sovereignty. We've got to understand that the God who fulfilled his promises will continue to fulfill his promises, right? That sounds obvious, but we miss it. He's still at work sovereignly. We can see that so much in verses 11 and 14. Do you see how uh, Paul was persecuting the church in verse 11? But, Paul, but Jesus says in verse 14, you're persecuting me. The Lord Jesus continues to work through the church. It's a profound thing. But he can say, if you're persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. And as the church works, the Lord Jesus is at work. That's the connection here. Do you see that again in verses 23 and 17? How what Jesus was doing, proclaiming light to the Jew and the Gentile, is exactly what Paul's doing in verse 17. Proclaiming light to the Jew and the Gentile. In fact, they're both quoting a prophecy in Isaiah that Paul says is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, but is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus as he continues to work through the church. He is still faithful. He is still sovereign. The Lord Jesus is completing his mission from God through the church. That's what's happening as Paul ministers. That's what we've been seeing so much through the book of Acts, isn't it? God is still faithful. He's still in control. As we read at the start of the book of Acts, where was the gospel going to go? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. What does Paul say? I went to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria. Now I'm before the Gentiles. As we read a few chapters ago in in chapter 9, that he would stand trial before the kings of the Gentiles and before the Jews. It would be okay. Well, isn't that the story of this chapter? Before the kings, before the Jews. And he was okay. God is delivering exactly what he promised to do. The rest of this chapter is such a clear thing of that. He says... The Lord Jesus is going to tell me to be a witness, and then I witness to you guys. God is still sovereign. He's still at work through his church. And this is what allows Paul to be the way he is, right? Patient in chains, bold in opportunities that are terrifying. Persuasive in his evangelism. Do you see how persuasive he is in 25, 26, and 27? It's like he's got a gripper up against the ropes. He's working the body. You know you believe in the prophets. Then the knockout blow has got to come. You've got to believe in Jesus. He's bold, isn't he? Are you trying to persuade me to become a Christian? Yes. You're allowed to say that, by the way, Charlotte Chapel. If you're trying to share the gospel with somebody and say, you trying to convert me? Yeah. You bet. You and everybody else who's listening. We're allowed to be that ambitious, to have that kind of desire to know that God is God and that he will fulfill his promised purpose among the nations. This should give us a calmness, right? Not that we do nothing, but that we're confident and calm as we share the gospel. Paul can cope with the cliffhanger at the end of this chapter, right? (gasps) What happens? Come back next week. 
he can cope with that cliffhanger. Why? Because God's sovereign at the end of Acts 26. Because God's promised what's going to happen. Paul says, okay, that's what's going to happen. That's how he can say things like he did in the last chapter. Look, if you're going to kill me, kill me. He believes in the resurrection, right? He's got faith in the resurrected Jesus. He's met the resurrected Jesus. He's not scared. The mission's going to carry on. He's going to continue to make the most of every mission opportunity he has. And if you want a modern example of believing in the sovereignty of God and seizing it for missions, my grandma is the perfect one for you tonight. Uh, This morning at four o'clock, my uncle Phil passed away. He went to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, leaving behind two healthy parents, my grandma and my grandpa. My grandma's been such an amazing witness through this, right? Suffering, yeah. Sovereignty, yeah. She said this, if you don't believe that God is sovereign in these kind of things, what are you playing at? That's what she said to me today, through the lips of grief. She said this, of what's been going on, and about the opportunities to share the gospel. This is true for us in missions this week. Christ is in the smallest of details. Brothers and sisters, we can be bold in our mission this week, knowing that we've got Christ, the risen Christ, light, in us, shining through us, that God is God and he will exalt his name. So let's be confident as we serve him this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice to know that you are a good and a sovereign God, one who is in control over all things, one who is working all things to his glory. And so we pray this week that you would use the members of this church to spread your gospel boldly and without hindrance. That you would use us in your divine plan in the situations you place us in. The work, the street, the friends, the relationships that we have, the buses we take. That you would help us to seize them and that in your sovereign plan this might be your means of exalting your name. We trust that the risen Lord Jesus is in control and is the head of this church and is working through his church across the world. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, be at work. Be at work in this city, in this country. As has been prayed, Lord, bring renown to your name in Scotland. We would ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to close by singing.